runs away. Verses 51 and 52 stand out a little from the chapter. A little strange, but they sit here not without purpose. And they go like this. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. That's all we ever hear of this young man. Now this is one of two things, or possibly both. I think it's both. The first is there's some speculation this young man might be Mark, the guy who ends up writing this gospel. Kind of a self-humbling mention without name of how he features in Jesus' story. A young man who is mentioned only once and then never again, whose only act is to flee naked from the scene. Maybe? I like to think so. But what it certainly shows us is how shallow and pitiful the human ambitions of the disciples and those gathered around Jesus who don't know him that well tended to be. Jesus' inner circle of followers had steadfastly clung to this idea that the kingdom was coming in glory and power right now and they wanted to be worthy of it and to be blessed and honored because of it and the time comes to be tested of who will stand with Jesus, who will dare to be arrested with him and share his fate. And when a soldier lays hands on this young man and grabs his robe to haul him off to whatever fate God may dictate for him, he wriggles out of his robe leaves it dangling in the soldier's fist and runs off into the night, naked and panicked and exposed for the scared child he is. Next, Jesus is taken to the council of priests and elders and teachers of the law, but Peter's humiliation is not complete, and he remains in this scene from verse 53. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They condemned him as worthy of death. Some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy, as the guards took him and beat him. So the mob and their priests, they struggled to uh, assemble their jumbled charges so they can take Jesus to Pilate. And Jesus was a master of talking himself out of the clutches of the priests. He was very good at that. He'd done it his entire career as a traveling preacher. Even if Jesus had remained totally silent, they might have had to release him, having no charge against him. But the only thing he says is to confirm that, yes, he is the Messiah, the Son of God, now and later when judgment comes. He hands himself over to them and gives them exactly the charge they want to execute them. The crowd beats him and spits on him. The guards beat him as well. And if this is 
Revolution, it is the opposite of glorious. And Peter can only watch helplessly from the sideline. Then comes Peter's chance to prove his earlier words, his vows that he was willing to suffer alongside Jesus, die with him if he had to. Starting verse 66. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you were talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. And again he denied it. After a little while, those standing near to Peter said, surely you are one of them, for you're a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man you are talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him before the rooster crows twice. You will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. He's a Galilean. He's in distress. Some people think they've seen him with Jesus. Jesus has been silent through this whole period, except for when he's asked if he is really the Messiah. And Jesus says, yes, knowing the shame and the agony that will follow. And when people ask Peter, hey, are you with him? They are functionally asking him the same question. Is this man the son of God, in your opinion? He could have answered yes and fulfilled his own promise even after his earlier failure. But not only does he deny knowing Jesus, deny knowing that Jesus is the Christ, but he debases himself by howling curses and stridently uh, denying knowing Jesus to distance himself from the doomed teacher from Nazareth. Do you suppose, as Jesus was being surrounded and kicked and spat upon by the people he came to save, that he could hear just outside this argument going on? Peter was close enough to hear the trial. Someone saying, you're a Galilean, you're one of them. And then maybe the voice of perhaps Jesus' closest friend in the world ranting, no, I swear to God, I do not know this man. And then the rooster crows. Peter realizes what he has done. And like the young man who fled before, he has been stripped bare of his pretensions of honor and bravery, and he is a frightened child. And he built a world of a fantasy of what it meant to be a good and righteous man and the honor that would come with that. And now the most good and righteous man he's ever known is being shamed and destroyed in front of him. Can we really blame him for weeping. He's being humbled. He's being humiliated. And that is the last we see of Peter in Mark's gospel. That's the, uh, the end of the story for the chief apostle, other than uh, later on the women are told to tell him that Jesus has risen. The rest of the story in today's passage proceeds with Christ alone up to just before the crucifixion, and we know how it goes. The priests hand Jesus over to Pilate for judgment. Pilate isn't convinced but eventually the pressure from the crowd is sufficient and he authorizes Jesus' execution. Now the Roman soldiers, like the Jewish guards, have their chance to mock and beat him. They dress him like a parody of a king. They force him to wear a crown of thorns on his head. They beat him with a stick and they lead him off to be crucified. And next week we'll be talking more about the crucifixion itself and visiting those details. This week, the heart of our passage is about Peter. Peter. Or at least that's a perspective to take on it.
because the gospel is informed by Peter's uh, direct experience, by his witness. He often stands in for the followers of Jesus. People talk about Peter and the disciples all through this gospel. Jesus goes and Peter goes with him. And uh, Peter announces that he will never stray away from Jesus, will never deny him. And everyone else puts up a hand and says, yes, what he said. And in his way, Peter stands in for all those who would follow Jesus after him too. He stands in for us. And people come to Jesus in a variety of ways because we have a variety of lives. Many Christians are raised in Christian families. They hear the stories. They learn about Jesus uh, as a childhood companion in their life, uh, a character they know from as early as they were able to hear a story at all. And others are raised in nominally Christian families, and they end up seeking him out after half a lifetime, looking for answers for questions they only eventually come to consider worth asking. And still others know nothing of him at all until someone brings them the gospel and they seize it with both hands. And yet across all of these ways of coming to know the person of Jesus Christ, there is a common experience, not completely common, but common enough to think about and to weigh over. A common experience in how we go from knowing something about him to knowing him truly. To thinking we know who Jesus is and then having that torn down and having the truth revealed to us. And that experience might go something like this for some people. First, you think Jesus is a certain thing, a teacher, a friend, a story, a myth, a helper, a comforter, a wish-granter, reassuring nonsense, a substitute for something we lost, a rally point for a social group, something like that. Some combination of those things, maybe. First, you think Jesus is a certain thing, and then just when you need him to be that thing, he is revealed to not be that, but to be something else entirely. And that experience leaves us humbled and maybe even humiliated. And this can be very upsetting to discover because people can build their whole lives, their whole identities around their idea of who Jesus is. And if that idea isn't accurate, the whole thing can come crashing down extraordinarily painfully. I'm talking about the idea that Jesus is a kind of uh, spiritual credit card. When life throws something at you that you can't handle on your own, you pray, you give it to Jesus, you put it on the card, and then you can carry on your life living out uh, generally in a good way. You sort of pay off that debt. He's good to you, you're good to him. You call on him when you need him. And then something very bad and very costly comes to your life. You lose your job and you can't get another one. Or your marriage breaks down or a child gets very sick. And you pray, God, I need a miracle. Fix this for me and I will be eternally grateful. And he doesn't. The card is declined. No miracle is forthcoming. The full weight of that loss lands in your lap and you think, I did everything right and Jesus did not come through for me. He is not what I thought he was. To think that he is one thing and then find out he is something else. Another way is for a kid who grows up in the church and as you learn about Jesus through songs and dances and games and fun, you come to know who he is, or at least you think. All your friends know and love Jesus and they go to camps about Jesus. And then you turn into a young adult and you have a car and free time and disposable income and maybe you discover that you actually like songs and dances and games even without Jesus being involved. 
And you make friends who don't know Jesus, maybe even better friends than the ones that you made at church. And you discover there's a whole life to live and experience an adventure that seems to be out there happening outside of the Jesus group. And Jesus, who used to stand for joy and love and community and praise for you, starts to seem stale and irrelevant. As if he was one thing you thought, but actually is revealed to be something else. It certainly happened to Peter. He thought he was to be numbered among the inner court of the Messiah King. A hero, a simple fisherman turned divine. Like Gideon was called out of his wine press into a grand victory in Israel's history. From that simple background to something glorious and godly. And this made sense to Peter, not just on a selfish level, but on a societal level, because his society was bent on honor and shame. There were the pillars upon which his world was built. And it was a horrible shame for the promised land to be occupied by Gentiles. It was a horrible shame that people had turned away from God and what an honor it would bring to God and God's righteous servants to drive the wicked out by fire and sword and to establish again the kingdom on earth. But Jesus did not bring honor to God, at least not like how Peter wanted it to happen. He said, yes, I am the Messiah, the chosen one of Israel. And then he let them, the Jews and the Gentiles alike, spit on him and torment him and mock him and eventually kill him. The idea that somehow uh, honorable or worthy to suffer terrible indignities and shames for the glory of God was something that was invented by Jesus in this act. Peter could not call upon this idea that one suffers nobly for the glory of God in this way until Jesus had demonstrated it for him. It didn't exist in Peter's mind. Being captured and tortured was what happened to Samson when he failed as a judge and disappointed God. It happened to Zedekiah, the last king of the Jews, as a punishment to the people of Israel. It was not what Peter thought Jesus was. And the irony is when he shouts out, I do not know the man, he is half right. Peter's fault was that he had the wrong idea about Jesus and the wrong idea about the world that he thought Jesus was stepping into. About the importance of shame and honor and and when and how God is obliged to right the wrongs of the world. And the young person who leaves church behind is wrong about what fun is for and the kind of friends that are the most valuable and about the bigger implied idea that the, the most important questions of life, who we are and why we're here and where we're going, that if you ignore them, they don't end up mattering. And we are wrong if we have built in our heads a picture of Jesus who answers prayers, helps us feel part of a community, and is otherwise happy to ride around silently in our back pocket for use in emergencies. Jesus did not come to earth to die to be someone's backup plan. For if life is too stressful or too dull or for anything else, he came to pay a bloody price to show us the way to know God. And that begins with digging up our preconceptions about life, about purpose in life, about our families and our careers and our money and our dreams. And all of these things need to be dug up from the roots and re-examined in the light of the fact that you are forgiven of your sins by Jesus. 
and can be restored to relationship and purpose with the God who made you. And God will help you dig, and He is good at digging. And sometimes it's freeing when you learn that Jesus isn't the thing that you thought He was a little bit. He's, he's not a no-fun policeman who hates rock music and games that don't have the word Bible in the title. And sometimes it's incredibly painful to learn how badly we've missed the mark. He does not promise to save you or those you love from death in this world. Not from old age, not from a dragon-like cancer, or from painful, random-feeling accidents that sometimes rob us even of the young and the good. Jesus does not promise to save you from death in this world, but to deliver you through it to eternal life on the other side of death. And if you don't know this promise and know the assurance that it means, then you may not know him at all. Peter was half right when he said he doesn't know the man Jesus who had told him that all of these things were going to happen. He couldn't understand what God wanted for him and what he was doing with Jesus. Peter's world was too small and Jesus was willing to break that world apart so that he could come to understand later. And when Jesus returns to life, we know he's reunited with Peter and the other disciples. He gives Peter this, uh, this three-chance uh, affirmation that he loves him. An opportunity to redeem himself, at least in that statement, to begin a life of service that follows. He goes on to become a church leader who makes mistakes but promotes the gospel and is one of the foundational members of the church that endures today. Because he thought that Jesus was one thing. And God taught him that he was wrong. And then he spent his life in submission to God in a world redefined by his relationship to his God and not his perception of, of shame or honor from one group or another. And that's a life that matters and the kind of life that we should all hope to live. This is a picture of the Pope. Not exactly a friend of ours, but part of our greater uh, kingdom, let's say. This is a picture of John Paul II uh, giving an address. He's in Israel. This is a trip in the year 2000, I believe. I just like this little interesting fact. Uh, I want to draw your attention to the inverted cross embedded in the throne there or up there in the middle one. It's kind of a weird thing to see in a church context. People freaked out when they saw this on TV back in 2000. It was... Um, Part of this visit to Israel to apologize for these historical crimes Christians had committed against Jews. People saw this upside-down cross embedded in the Pope's throne in his chair. They went upside-down cross. The Pope worships the devil. It's a devil symbol. Well, not exactly. It's certainly used that way sometimes. But Catholics have an idea of priesthood where the Pope is the head of the priests on earth. And they believe that the first Pope was Peter. This is St. Peter's chair. It's not the one he sat in or anything like that, but it's dedicated to Peter. And the upside-down cross is St. Peter's cross because when he was finally crucified in Rome, his killers respected his wish to be crucified upside-down. Proud, stumbling, wrong-headed, desperate to prove himself for glory, Peter ends up humbled so much that he feels he doesn't deserve to meet death the same way that Jesus did. And so the Catholic Church uses this cross to remind its priests and its popes of their need to be humble. We're Baptists here. 
We believe in the priesthood of all believers. Everyone who knows Jesus has the Holy Spirit in them and becomes a representative of God on earth. And all of us carry with us a priestly mission and a witness, for good or for ill, depending on how well we carry it, how devoted we are and how we carry ourselves and draw ourselves close to God each day. And all of us, each of us, could stand to show a little humility as we seek to make our Savior, and not anything else, not our dreams, not our ambitions, not the things we expect of the world, but Jesus, our Savior, the center of our lives each day. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for sending your Son to save us. We thank you for the blessings that that means for us, for a more satisfying life, for comfort when we suffer, a sense of adventure available for those who seek you, community, friendship, a God who hears our prayers when we are desperate. But Lord, let none of these blessings overshadow in our heart the true purpose of your Son's coming, to offer himself as a sacrifice, to pay the price for our sins, so that we can come to you as sons and daughters to know you, and by that knowing to be transformed into people worthy of the eternal life that you have promised us with Jesus' resurrection. Father, if we have an idea about what your Son means and we are mistaken, humble us, Lord. Humble us before we go astray into ruin. We want real relationship and everything that implies. So refresh us with your Holy Spirit. Draw us closer into the spiritual habits that we must practice to stay close to you. Bless our reading of the Word and our time in prayer and our time dwelling upon the Gospel and our service to one another in your name. We ask all of these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.